they've always been feminists, but they've been told for years that they can't be because of their pro-life views. And we just said, you know what? Feminism is honestly rooted in rebellion. So we're gonna rebel even against what this current generation has defined the meaning as and create this space. And since then it's, it's gone like gangbusters. Welcome to Dear Jane. I'm your host, Scott Baker. You know, sometimes we hear labels thrown around and we think we know what they mean. We may assign a meaning to them. We could be wrong. We could have different interpretations than others. And that might be the case today with our guest. We sit down with Destiny Herndon De La Rosa from New Wave Feminists to talk about pro-life issues and what it's like to be pro-life in the feminist community. Welcome, Destiny. You know, it might be a good idea for us to provide some context here at the very beginning. What's your definition of a feminist? Well, I always kind of go with the most basic version, like the Webster's Dictionary version, that it's just a belief that women should have equal rights and opportunities. And under that version, I think most of us are feminists. Most people agree with that. Um, the issue is that it got co-opted somewhere in the 70s and started taking on a completely different meaning that became synonymous with things like abortion. And so you hear people say, everybody should be a feminist. And then someone will say, well, wait, I'm pro-life. And oh, gross. No, you hate women. You can't be a feminist. Well, by the Webster's Dictionary version, you absolutely can be a feminist. Uh, And I think that's why with New Wave Feminism, we kind of separated ourselves a bit and just said, we need to add some other qualifiers that take it back to its roots more, but also add our own unique version that we believe no human being is property from womb to tomb. You know, at no point in your life should you be property. And bodily autonomy matters from the moment your body first exists, it should be protected from violence. So I guess I did jump ahead and answer your other question, but that's <laughs> that's feminism. And then kind of the the caveat we feel like we need to put, not because the definition is wrong, but because the interpretation uh, throughout the last few decades has been a bit off. Speaking of being a bit off, why do I, of course, I'm a middle-aged male, why do I, when I hear the term feminist, why do I think anti-male? Certainly you've heard that before. Why, why, why do I immediately go there? I think, I mean, I think that, you know, because of the world of social media and everything else, you, you tend to look for the loudest, right? The media, even before social media, regular media, covers the loudest. And I would argue that the same can be said for pro-lifers. You know, if you meet somebody who's not in the pro-life movement and you say you're pro-life, suddenly they're like, oh, like it comes with a whole bunch of baggage that you have to say, I'm pro-life, but I don't stand outside of clinics and scream at women. I don't, you know, want to control anybody's body. I don't. And we have to give all of these disclaimers constantly. I think the same, the same really does apply for uh, feminism as well. It, it comes with this stigma, the societal stigma that maybe certain extreme elements have earned, but it's certainly not the whole of the feminist movement. All right. So that sort of sets the context of feminists. So new wave feminists comes along. Why the need for sort of a, I won't call it a subsection, but why the differentiation between a, a, a feminist, more of, let's call it mainstream or traditional feminism, and a new wave feminist? So you have actually traditional feminism, um, the suffrage movement, things like that. It, it was pro-life. And again, then it came about after the sexual revolution that it became um, much more of a movement that was linked to abortion. 
And I would even argue co-opted by a lot of males that wanted to exploit women's bodies and dressed it up as feminism. And, and there's a whole slew of things that came about during that wave that were very, um, I would say, actually harmful to women, but suddenly were embraced because they were packaged in the right way. And that's kind of the feminism that we're familiar with these days, this modern feminism. Um, there's also some good in it. It's not all bad, but there there definitely was a changing of what it meant to be a feminist. And so when we when I started New Wave Feminist, I think we wanted to kind of not be on the defensive, perhaps just give people a bit of a warning learning, you know, so that they could understand more where we're coming from. Uh, I honestly, I consider us consistent life ethicist uh, feminists, right? We, we believe that human beings should be free from violence for the duration of their lifetime. But because that's not a buzzword yet, we go with pro-life. That's what most people know. Uh, then I get to explain, you know, we're pro-life, but not this, this, this. We're, we're feminists, but not this, this, this. <laughs> we're, we're kind of somewhere in the middle. Uh, a lot of it came from my own personal lived experience. My mom was 19 years old when she got pregnant with me. She was away at college, ended up having to drop out, move back home, spent 10 years really kind of struggling and working to get her degree. And during that time, it was just, it was unnecessary. Had we lived in a society that was equitable for women, she could have continued her pregnancy and her education. She could have been more on her feet. Uh, and it would have benefited both myself and my mother quite a bit. And so I saw that inequity when it came to her having to navigate the world as an unwed pregnant 19 year old and realizing how difficult that was growing up. And it kind of just set us back in a lot of ways. And then at 16, I became pregnant myself and no one in the world could have been more upset and disappointed in me than than I was in myself. Like I knew how hard it was being the the child in this scenario. And now here I was, you know the the adult, but not even an adult yet. And just knowing that this was going to unfortunately lead to some suffering that again was unnecessary. Thankfully, I had an amazing family that surrounded me and supported me. And I had privileges like health insurance, a roof over my head, food in my mouth, these, these basic necessities that unfortunately a lot of pregnant people don't have. So when I decided to form a feminist organization, I couldn't leave that part of myself behind. That was that was too big of a chunk of my identity and who I was. But also knowing that it might not be welcome in these spaces, I figured we needed to add a qualifier. We are new wave feminists. We're, we're kind of doing something a little bit different. We started as a MySpace page. There were like four people that followed us. And I don't even think I had enough for like my top eight. Like it was tiny. It was never meant to be this. And then it kind of exploded into something because I think it gave a lot of people permission to you know, claim the title of feminist because they are feminists. They've always been feminists, but they've been told for years that they can't be because of their pro-life views. And we just said, you know what? Feminism is honestly rooted in rebellion. So we're going to rebel even against what this current generation has defined the meaning as and create this space. And since then, it's it's gone like gangbusters. How are new wave feminists treated within the uh, more traditional feminist community? I mean, it's weird because you have the online world, which I, I don't know if it's the same in your experience, very different than the actual world. When you're looking face to face, like having a conversation with somebody, uh, it can be incredibly different. So online, do people write articles about how we're not really sure? I mean, whatever. 
it's it's the internet it's not the real world when we go into spaces though in real life i've found that we share so much more in common than than the things that uh you know differentiate us and especially when i start talking about the inequities in pregnancy and how we need to fight for women's rights in the workplace and in other places uh because we are being literally harmed through our fertility. It's viewed as a liability in corporate America and academia and all these places. And there's a lot of work to be done. And just slapping, you know, abortion on everything is not the solution because not every woman wants an abortion. So true, a truly pro-choice person goes beyond just the option to terminate, they should be looking at these other societal uh, systemic issues that are actually making it very, very difficult for someone to continue their pregnancy if that is, you know, again, their choice. So when I bring that up, I think there, the people who are intellectually honest about it will acknowledge, okay, yeah, we've definitely neglected that one space because everything is pushed towards promoting abortion. But again, you know, people often say, you're not pro-life, you're just pro-birth. Well, why am I not pro-life? Well, because you don't care about this, 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 and this. And so I took that challenge very seriously. And I said, okay, I'm going to care about this. I'm going to do something about this. You know, we work in spaces right now along the border with migrant mothers. We are marching for racial justice and against police brutality. I'm writing articles about being anti-death penalty. Like these are things that um, I don't think you have to have that, obviously, to be pro-life. People are going to disagree on these different issues. But for me personally, I I wanted to be as consistent as possible. And so I did look into these other things. I became very active in these other spaces in that same way that they say, you're not pro-life, you're pro-birth. I kind of throw that back and I say, okay, so now that I've done my side of it, are you pro-abortion or are you pro-choice? And they'll often say, no, I'm nobody's pro-abortion. I'm pro-choice. Okay. What are you doing for the other choices? How are you making it so that women actually feel like they have choices? We know the gut mocker, which is a research arm of Planned Parenthood, literally has statistics that say over 60% of women only choose, and I'm using air quotes uh, on the radio, which isn't smart, but only our podcast <laughs> choose abortion because they feel like they have no other choice. It's done because of financial constraints, these other hardships. So tell me again how what they are currently doing by just funding abortion, promoting abortion, you know, shouting abortions is actually helping women make any type of choice. To me, it feels the exact opposite. I was reading a piece and it, it may be a, a year or two old now where where you you guys were trying to um, participate in the Women's March in uh, D.C. And uh, and I'm wondering if, if this is indicative of what you guys try to do. You I keep saying you guys, uh, the new wave feminists, um, where, you, you know, it might be a situation where you might agree with 95% of the issues uh, with other feminists, but since you didn't agree on abortion, there was a lot of people there just wouldn't accept you, didn't want you there and thought you should go away. You find that to be the case a lot? 
Um, so the funny thing about that, and it was actually five years ago, like okay. COVID has warped our brains and because, yeah, I feel the same way. Oh, a couple of years back. No, five years ago. So it was back in 2017 and we had applied for sponsorship. And to my surprise, we were accepted as sponsors. And this was with me filling out the information and saying, while we're anti-abortion here, are the other things we agree on. And I had the long list and we would love to partner with you. So we were accepted as sponsors for four glorious days. And then somebody made some hubbub on Twitter, and that's all it takes to bring down an empire, right? And so uh, all of a sudden, this Twitter storm starts, and a whole bunch of people get upset, and they just remove us. They don't contact us, which is suddenly we're off the site. I found this out because I was actually doing a, a Zoom call with a university. I just closed up my laptop, and I get this call from someone at Rolling Stone, and they're like, hey, can I get a quote from you about getting kicked out of the Women's March? That was the first thing that was said to me, and I was like give me two and a half minutes. I'll call you right back. Uh, I don't know that I have feelings on this yet. And I mean, part of me, like I said, was surprised that, that they necessarily accepted us to begin with. But this part was not as surprising. It was disappointing. I actually thought it was really cool that they had accepted us, that they were willing to work uh, with other people doing the work for for women, for children, for families, for, you know, the betterment of society. And then the next two weeks were just a blur of doing a ton of interviews, talking to everyone I could. It was an amazing opportunity, actually, to speak about the consistent life ethic. And, you know, it's basically kind of pro-life, but on steroids, like extending it to the whole life. And most of these journalists who are very pro-choice, borderline, I would say pro-abortion, uh, when we would have these interviews, by the end of it, they're like, okay, I disagree with you, but I see where you're coming from. And this is consistent. And thank you for your work. And I just realized how powerful the consistent life ethic uh, truly is at creating bridges. So then at the end of this two weeks, the march comes up and we decide we're going to go because you can't not let us go. That's, I don't know. And we're feminists, whatever. We're going to go. We're going to do what we want. So we go to the march expecting, like, like bracing for the worst, right? I remember that morning my husband had actually said, take your business card and like put it in your boot. And, you know, maybe write your phone number somewhere on your body. Like it was, it was in case I am unconscious. That is what he was implying. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. Uh, and I definitely walked out there very timid that morning because I had just seen the vitriol and the online, um, you know, stuff coming at us that was very intense. But as I was standing out there waiting for our group to meet up with us, it's, you know, 8.30, I get there, the streets start getting packed. I've never seen more people in my life. Uh, we do the March for Life every year as well, but the, the Women's March was a different level. There were so many people and they all start showing up and I have my sign that says I'm a pro-life feminist. And I was like, okay, I need to hold it a little higher because there's so many people, you know, I mean, I'm doing everyone the favor of having purple hair, which I think makes me easier to spot, but not in a crowd like this. And so I was like, I need to hold the sign up a little bit higher. And so I, I slowly start lifting it, waiting just to get punched in the face. And this much older woman comes just barreling towards me. And I'm like, all right, can I take her? I don't know. I don't feel like I believe in that. But like, maybe uh, if I have to defend myself, I hope nobody's recording. And I just remember she sticks her finger straight in my face and she goes, I think it's wrong. And I was like, oh, I know. I, I know you do. And she goes that you were kicked out of this march. You have every right to be here. And I'm blown away because let me tell you, this woman is wearing a Planned Parenthood beanie that they were giving out as a Planned Parenthood scarf is holding a gigantic Planned Parenthood sign that's like the size of her. And she just said that to me. 
And again, it was like the difference between online and in real life. And throughout the day, this kept happening over and over and over again. You know, we'd be standing next to a group of women and hear them contacting their friend and say, oh, I don't know, we're over here by these pro-life feminists. Yeah, you know, the ones that got kicked out of the march. Yeah, no, it's here. I think it's cool, too. They should be here. Like, I mean, just stuff like this, where when you're with the real people, they understand the nuance. And I would also argue probably many of them know exactly what we're talking about when we, you know, give platforms to women who felt they had no choice but abortion and the pain it's caused them and the regret that they've had for years. And that population is erased so frequently within the pro-choice movement because we don't want to do anything, you know, that uh, brings stigma, right? Well, we give those women a platform to to voice the reality of what abortion done to them. And that doesn't mean that Every woman, you know, has the same type of feelings, but a lot of women do have that feeling. And I think that as this became this national conversation, which it was, it even made it into the SNL weekend update, which maybe was the highlight of my life. Like they referenced it, right? Like this is a really big deal. Um, it caused people to look more into us and really kind of, I I don't know, I want to say like became maybe a guilty pleasure for some of them. I had one woman, I had done a interview at like 5 a.m. that morning with Fox News and she walked past me and she whispered, saw you on Fox this morning, you did great. And I was like, what? You watch Fox? I don't even watch Fox. If anybody should get kicked out of here, it should be you. Like you're too extreme lady. Like, I don't think so. So I mean, for me, the Women's March was one of the best days of my life. It was an absolutely beautiful experience. You've said a couple uh, a couple times now, um, I want to gain a better understanding of exactly what do you mean by pro-life? You, you mentioned I jotted down pro-life, but not this, this, and this. And you also said pro-life, but on steroids. So what do you mean when you say pro-life? So for me, pro-life just means, you know, Believing in protection for the unborn child in the womb, understanding the full human dignity of the unborn child in the womb, understanding that they are a full human person and deserve protection and rights of their own. And I think that's very hard for people to understand when, you know, we mesh that with the word feminist, because then we get into bodily autonomy and issues like that, obviously. And I certainly believe in a woman's bodily autonomy, but I disagree with the argument that it's, you know, my body, my choice, because we know scientifically, biologically, it is not the woman's body. It's a body inside of her body, which is unique. We don't have any other, you know, example that we can compare that to. Um, but it's, still two separate bodies. And I, you know, ask feminists all the time, when, when did your bod bodily autonomy come into existence? It only makes sense to me that it should exist as soon as your body exists, that especially at the point when you are your weakest and most vulnerable inside your mother's womb. That is the time that if you look at the feminist movement, they do a wonderful job of really protecting marginalized groups, right? And elevating marginalized voices and saying, you know, if you struggle with housing insecurity or mental illness or disabilities or any of these things, like we're going to fight for you because in this vulnerability, that's where we're going to use our strength and privilege and rights to stand up for you, to advocate for you. But for some reason, they fall silent when it comes to the child inside the womb. And to me, it it is just the most massive contradiction. So, so to me, being pro-life and a feminist is consistent. It's not a contradiction at all. But leaving out this huge people group of the, the unborn child in the womb is a contradiction. The reason that I say that, you know, 
I don't know that we fit seamlessly into what people would consider traditional pro-lifers. We've never really been focused on the legality of abortion, on overturning Roe. There were plenty of groups that were doing that. That's never been our focus. Our focus has more been on what can we um, do to actually make a woman feel like she has a choice, right? So paid family leave and pregnant worker protections and, you know, on campuses, pregnant and parenting housing, like these are all things that actually make it possible for a person to continue a pregnancy. And in my mind, that's more effective because again, I just go back to the fact that, you know, I was 16 and terrified. I never considered abortion um, because my family had done an amazing job of humanizing the unborn child in the womb for me from the time I was very young. We had that copy of Life magazine that had all of the pictures of the different fetal stages of development. And so just from a science and, and biological perspective, I always understood this is a human being. And I always had great respect and reverence for that. So when I became pregnant, abortion wasn't an option, but the level of sheer terror that you feel when that second line shows up, when you were never going to, like, this was never going to happen to you. And here it is, it's happening. Your worst nightmare, your whole life feels like it's spiraling out of control and like the world's crumbling around you. Like it is such a suffocating type panic. I don't know how else to describe it. And if I didn't have that belief in the humanity of the unborn child, I would have done literally anything to make that feeling stop. And I think that even now in this post-Roe culture, that's our true enemy, not the law of the land, but the fact that that desperation that a pregnant person feels is so extreme that we have to be the calm in the storm. And that tends to be where at New Wave Feminists, we put most of our efforts. How do we walk alongside women? How do we make sure that they feel safe so that the chaos can clear out of their heads long enough that they can actually form a plan? And come up with a path forward without ordering pills offline or doing other dangerous things because they feel like an animal caught in a trap. Visiting with Destiny Herndon De La Rosa from New Wave Feminist. We'll take a break and come back with more here on Dear Jane. Are you a pregnancy center or pro-life organization that wants to grow your life-saving mission in a way that effectively reaches women who need help? At Choose Life Promo, our ultimate goal is to help organizations empower women to choose life. We take our design and marketing expertise to the next level, creating apparel, videos, and other items that are eye-catching and attractive, ripe with accurate information specifically for women that need support, and spread awareness about your pregnancy center to donors and potential supporters. At Choose Life Promo, our mission is to impact our culture, to choose life through communication strategies grounded in both research and biblical values. We want to give you promotional items that inspire donations and also educate the abortion-minded woman about your pregnancy center so she can receive the care and support she needs. Saving lives is always in style. Learn more at ChooseLifePromo.com. We're back with Destiny Herndon De La Rosa with New Wave Feminist, and we're talking about the group 
uh, New Wave Feminist. Now, one of the things that I did read about you, Destiny, when I think it was a quote. It says, we're not just pro-lifers who are feminists, but feminists first and foremost. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, the easiest thing would be, okay, you're so you're first and foremost, you're a feminist. It would have been so easy for you to say, okay, my passion is in feminism and the feminist cause, and just go with that and sort of amp down your, your pro-life beliefs and passions and that sort of thing. But you didn't do that. Why? Yeah, I think that, again, it was kind of, for me, being pro-life is such a natural extension of my feminism. So I'm a feminist, first and foremost. I believe that women deserve equal rights and access to spaces and opportunities and a voice at the table. And we should be everywhere decisions are being made, right? Like RBG says, it's it's something where my feminism is so deep that it honestly makes me feel very kindred to the child in the womb and understanding what it's like to have been treated as property historically and see the the deficiencies that it has caused in the world for women because of that. And then now see how we are so far behind when it comes to I mean, myriad other marginalized groups, but especially the unborn child. Feminists aren't even looking at that group. Um, they're they're actively fighting to eliminate that group. Uh, modern radical feminists are. And so it was just such an inconsistency that I was never going to be able to tamp it down if I truly wanted to live out my feminist beliefs. The pro-life part was always going to be a big part of it, uh, because I think that it it's a huge misstep in the feminist movement. It makes a joke out of what feminism is. It makes it inconsistent. It makes it fallible. And I love feminism so much. I believe in it so much that I want to be part of correcting course for future generations, because as long as we go on this path, there are future, you know, a big chunk of those future generations won't even exist to become feminists. I think that's why for me, I do put it in that order. Um, but it's so consistent together that I think most people would be able to see it if they hadn't been just had this lie drilled into their heads for the last, you know, 50 years now that abortion and feminism go hand in hand. Like without that, this is not the natural inclination, especially when you start looking globally at feminism and what that would mean for the world. And we're looking in other countries at places where there's female genital mutilation and um, marital rape is not illegal and there's child brides and all of these other atrocities. And they're saying, help us fight, you know, patriarchy. You mentioned earlier that people think that we all hate men. We do not hate men. I have built two men with my body. That's how much I love men. And I'm married to a pretty decent one too. So we don't hate men. But when I talk about patriarchy, I'm talking about a system that was created for men by men that was never really meant to accommodate womanhood in any way. And when we look at global patriarchy, which I'm thankful that I'm seeing more feminists these days kind of talk about that, not just American uh, issues that that females here, here struggle with. But, you know, obviously we're seeing it right now in Iran. Uh, but this is something that has continued to go on when people reference things like The Handmaid's Tale. As far as American politics go, 
just know there. Oh my gosh. If you want examples of the handmaid's tale, like let's look in South America with women being trafficked. Let's look in Africa with the most horrific things that are happening. Let's look in Iran at how the LGBTQ community is being treated. Like there are real life examples that Margaret Atwood pulled from to create the handmaid's tale. So thinking more globally about patriarchy and what that looks like and the women sitting there saying okay our american sisters you're building this power you're organizing like help us and then all we do is send abortion doctors over there to sterilize them and kill their children and it's so interesting when you know you meet these women i've been able to sit down and speak with them at at the un and other global events and you meet them and you hear them trying to vocalize how they do not understand the way we're like, it's crazy to them that our solution to rape is not to go after the rapist and stop the perpetrator. Instead, it's to cause another wound to to the woman. And they don't want that. They don't want that. They want you to actually get to the root of it and stop these patriarchal abuses. As I was preparing for this conversation, um, I was looking at your website and one of the things I came across was some of the work that you guys are doing at the border. And and when I first saw it, I thought, well, okay, you know, we're really just, we're talking about pro-life here. I kind of glossed over it. I thought, nah, it's not really, it's not going to fit what we're talking about here. But then as I kept doing some more research, what, I came across this article from a professor, a, a, a feminist pro-choice professor, and she was making the case that feminists... Uh, in the future need to really tie immigration and abortion. Basically, she was saying we need to we need to tie what's going on at the border to the pro-choice movement. And that made me think, oh, I need to go back and re- and get more familiar with exactly what's going on at the border because that that's that's exactly right. So t- tell me more about what's what's going on at the border and why it matters. So, South America, Mexico in particular, has decriminalized abortion. So they're on their way to fully legalizing it, which means we're going to see, currently it kind of happens in hospitals, but we're going to see the Marie Stopes, the Planned Parenthood, all of these large abortion industry type organizations that quite literally make a killing off of the practice of abortion, they are going to be moving to South America and inundating it. We already saw them trying it at the border. Uh, My board member, Karina Berseda, was down there and she was running a, a shelter at the time. I had people, you know, banging on her door. Hey, we'll give you you know, grants, if you'll let us have access to your women. And these were pro-choice organizations. And they would say, we just want to talk to him about, you know, feminine hygiene and menstrual cycles and ovulation and stuff. But she knew better. She knew exactly what they were trying to do. It's what Planned Parenthood does here in the States, right? It's let's get our customers in early and often so that then when they're facing an unintended pregnancy, they know exactly where we are, how much it's going to cost, we'll take care of it for them. And because, because at this point, we're part of their community and that is what they are trying to do in South America. And so she reached out to us and said, hey, guys, I need help. Like, I'm a pro-life feminist. I don't want to allow any of these abortion advocates in. But at the same time, we can barely keep the lights on. And so I said, yeah, let's let's see what we can do. Like, I don't know exactly our following on, you know, Facebook, if if this is something that uh, they would want to support, but they probably would because we had already been working along the border in McAllen, Texas on the U.S. side. 
And so we threw this out there and were able to support that shelter for the next two years that she worked at. And then we kind of outgrew that space. And I just fell in love with Juarez, Mexico. It is absolutely where my heart is. And we decided, okay, maybe it's time to expand this beyond just even a shelter, but to uh, a full consistent life ethics center down at the border. And so we just closed on it last month. Um, We're so excited. We're hoping to open next month, but it's going to be a shelter. So a home for migrant mothers. Uh, many of whom are pregnant, and most of them have become pregnant through sexual violence on their journey. But the really interesting thing is they don't want abortions. They they simply want a safe place uh, where they can continue their pregnancies because they do become incredibly vulnerable when they are pregnant, um, undocumented in Mexico, having to stay there and wait for their asylum to come through to the U.S. And it, it puts a major target on them. And so being able to offer them safe shelter is a huge part of this. And then we also have a building on the property that we're going to set up as a medical clinic where we can open that to the community and provide pregnancy resources, pregnancy care, um, sonograms, prenatal care. We've already got a team of doctors down there that want to work with us in, in doing this. And then the hope is also to kind of have a community center type space where we can do even post-abortion classes, um, prenatal classes, things like that, and just really bring the community in to start a, a pro-life movement down there and a pro-life feminist movement down there that goes beyond, you know, Right now, kind of what they have, they do a they do a march and they'll stand outside of hospitals with signs, but it's just it's not necessarily an organized ideological kind of uh, shift in cultural consciousness, which is what we want to bring because the other side is absolutely showing up there. And it's very easy for them to sell this bill of goods to women seeking asylum and say, you're vulnerable as long as you're pregnant. It might be easier for you to get your asylum if you don't have a child in tow. You know, that's more paperwork you're going to have to do. Like, these are the most vulnerable um, pregnant women close to us right now. And so our heart has just really been to, to create this. And it's we, it was a wild dream. We never in a million years thought that we were going to be able to pull this off because we're a small organization. But it has been beautiful to watch people who have just similar hearts to ours say, yes, do this. Take our money. Go start this. Love on women well and protect those babies. Last question before I let you go. And I wasn't originally going to ask you this question, but you know what? I, I think I will. Uh, and, and I ask this of our guests from time to time, and I'm, I'm just curious to, to, I ask it for two reasons. One, I think it's an interesting question, but two, I'm, I'm, I'm learning. And, and so I'll pose this question to you. What is the role, as you think about the discussion and debate over abortion in America, in the U.S. primarily, what is the role of men in that discussion? You know, I think... Obviously, abortion is not just a women's issue. This is something that it is a human rights issue. And so I think that men speaking to other men would be a pivotal uh, thing to, to start encountering other men. Because I will tell you that the women that I work with here on the U.S. side, I cannot remember the last one who said, my boyfriend and I, my husband and I, you know, my partner and I are trying to figure out what to do. It is always a usually young, frightened girl that comes to me and says, I'm single, I'm pregnant, I don't know what to do, I have no support system. And that breakdown is what's causing her to then break down, is causing her to say, I have to terminate because I have no other option. 
And I think that men showing up would be a game changer. I think that um, the fathers of these children sticking around would be a game changer, especially when we look at families, even like my own, where the my biological father took off, then my son's father took off. It's, it becomes systemic and it just creates this cycle of poverty and hardships for the women who do choose life, which is wonderful. We're happy for them. But what type of life have they chosen when they've done that? You know, evictions, couch surfing, you know, losing jobs because they're the sole caregiver. Men showing up would be such an enormous help to not only the woman, but obviously the child. And I think that for pro-life men, a huge place of activism for them would be mentoring these other men, finding these men. You know, when a girl calls me, if if she can tell me her partner's number, like if I had a group of dudes I could call and be like, hey, can you go lovingly encourage this guy to actually step up? Because I think we talk a lot in feminist circles about how women just feel so beaten down through society from the age, you know, from the time we're very, very young. We're inundated by messages about how we're not enough. We're never going to measure up. But I would argue that the same thing is happening to a lot of young men where they are being made into cowards because they're told that they're not enough. And, you know, the best thing you can do is just leave this woman, get out of this kid's life. You've made a big mess. Get out of here. That's just not true. Show up with the best you have. We all feel inadequate when it comes to raising children, but being there is so much better than not being there. Well, and we're told. Well, and and in that case, the young men are told that they're not to have an opinion. They're told just, hey, you don't have an opinion. You just just support whatever she decides. And and a lot of times, isn't she looking for him to have an opinion? And I don't know. I I I, I think you hit the nail on the head, and I think you're so right. I I think that you know that's like this TV trope we see where you know the very woke progressive man says, oh, but it's not my choice. It's your choice. And ironically, even lately in a couple like Netflix rom-coms I've seen, in each one, when the guy says that, the woman usually is crestfallen and like, oh, I wanted you to be happy or embrace me or something. Like we know that naturally that women are terrified when that second line shows up when it's an unintended pregnancy. And so being able to have somebody else say, I'm in this with you, like we're a team, we're going to figure this out. I think it's it's huge. And again, as somebody who was the product of an unplanned pregnancy and then experienced one myself, like it would have absolutely changed my life had those men stuck around and and been more involved. And I think that that's something that pro-life men can really get to work on. I, I do understand it's very hard in activism circles. You know, I don't know that you should be the ones out there at the Women's March, like trying to argue with people. I don't think that's going to be very productive, but the place for you uh, really promote a life culture with other men and, and ask them to man up because we're womaning up all the time. We're the ones having the babies. And I don't even, we all know how hard that part is. So ask men to, to do their part. I think that would be a great use of y'all's time. The website is newwavefeminist.com. Destiny Herndon De La Rosa, thank you so much for joining us here on Dear Jane. Thank you for having me. The emotions and fears women face with unexpected pregnancies are very real and can feel overwhelming. They're not looking for another person to impress their view upon them or tell them the choice is simple. They're looking for hope in a world of despair, confusion, and doubt. For the pro-life movement to truly achieve its goal of a culture of life, we must be able to reach the abortion-minded woman effectively. 
We have to be that beacon of light that understands her fear and confusion and empowers her with the confidence necessary to choose life. But how do we really reach her? Enter the Choose Life Coalition. We exist to help provide organizations and legislators with the tools to effectively reach and equip the abortion-minded woman, empowering her with the hope and confidence to choose life in post-Roe America. Learn more at ChooseLifeCoalition.org and receive the training, support, marketing, and other resources you need to successfully understand, reach, and serve her. On this edition of People You Should Know, we introduce you to Monica Kelsey, the founder of Safe Haven Baby Boxes. Every state has safe haven laws that allow mothers to permanently relinquish their babies without fear of prosecution. The baby box is an extension of that law, so it still allows a parent to surrender that child, but now they can do it anonymously. These boxes are electronically monitored, so they call 911 on their own. They don't have to, you know, the parent doesn't have to call someone. They basically just walk up to this electronically monitored box that's heated and cooled. They place their newborn inside, they shut the door, and they turn around and they walk away knowing that their child's going to be picked up within a couple of minutes. While the process of leaving a child in a safe haven baby box can seem crude and is very difficult, Monica says the mothers who do so should not be judged. It's very rewarding to walk alongside a mother that has chosen. We don't choose this for them. This is something that they've chosen um, to selflessly lovingly surrender their child. And basically they're saying, I want what's best for my child and it's not me. And that, that to me is heroic, but it's very encouraging and very comforting to know that these parents love these kids with everything they have. They just want to give them something more. And so these parents, we don't give them enough credit. We really, really don't. Um, This is one of the hardest days of their life and they're making a really good choice if this is the only choice they have. To date, there have been over 120 babies saved from calls to the Safe Haven Baby Box National Hotline. Monica says most of the baby boxes are placed where you might expect. So our baby boxes are installed in fire stations and hospitals. Uh, Most of our boxes are the ones that are being used at fire stations, not so much hospitals. And I think that's because, you know, women trust firefighters. They just do. And plus, hospitals are a little bit more crowded. And when you want anonymity, when you don't want anyone to know your identity, You know, a a busy place is not a place to be, Uh, but we have had babies at our hospitals as well in our boxes. Monica says it's not uncommon for a mother to stick around to make sure a baby is safely delivered to the authorities when they're dropped off in a safe haven baby box. And so we actually, some of the fire stations that um, have had babies in their boxes will tell us that there was somebody across the street in a parked car where there was somebody in. And so this mother is watching to make sure an ambulance is picking up these babies. And so we do hear from a lot of these moms. Unfortunately, we hear from a lot of them after they surrender. We want to hear from them before because we can help them make sure that they have all their options. If they have all of their options and they still want to do this, absolutely, we will walk alongside her to do this. But we want to ensure that she has been given an adoption plan option, a parenting plan option um, prior to her surrendering under the safe haven law. Monica says it's important to remember that safe haven laws are available everywhere in the U.S., but laws do vary. And so any hospital anywhere 
you can walk in and hand your child to a person. Now, some states only require uh, a child to be 30 days old or less. Some states require a child to be three days old or less. Some states, seven days old or less. And some states, 14 days old or less. The best thing to do is we run a 24-hour hotline. And if you're in a state that you don't know their safe haven law, call us. We will educate you to make sure that you stay legal within your, st- your state statute um, and, and make sure that you're given all of your options. To learn more about Safe Haven Baby Boxes, visit shbb.org, or you can call their national hotline at 1-866-99-BABY-1. That's 1-866-99-BABY-1. I'll confess that some of my stereotypes were shattered after talking with Destiny from New Wave Feminists on Dear Jane Today. And that's sort of the point of the Dear Jane podcast. We want to have conversations with a wide array of people across the pro-life movement and beyond. We want to explore the magnitude of the movement and show just how broad it really is. You see, the other side likes to think that pro-life supporters fit in a small square box and that we're all the same. We're here to prove that's way off. If you have some guest ideas, please share them at Dear Jane Podcast at ChooseLifeCoalition.org. Dear Jane is a production of the Choose Life Coalition. You can learn more at DearJane.org.